Hello, everyone, and happy Super Bowl Sunday. In anticipation of tomorrow's halftime performance from the great Usher, we decided we would republish our episode from back in September 2022 about Usher with Rawia Khmer. This is one of my all-time favorite episodes because Usher is one of my all-time favorite artists, and listening back to it and how giddy I was to talk about Usher has been really, really fun. But if you feel like you need a primer on Usher before we get into the Super Bowl, which is obviously going to make Usher a point of conversation over the next few days, weeks, hopefully for a long time, and he has a new record coming out soon, we thought it would be instructive to return to this episode. So without further ado, here is a look back at our episode from September 2022 on Usher. Yo, I ain't seen you in a minute, but I got something to tell you. I've talked a bunch on this show about a shifting premium in social media era pop stardom. From a craft that hinged on showmanship and virtuosity to one that trades in performances of diaristic relatability. Nowadays, we like our pop stars to at least sell us on the idea that they're quote unquote just like us. But there was a time period when pop stardom was proudly otherworldly, where the signature acts of the day sang and danced and put on a show in a way that we, the layperson, wouldn't dare dream of accessing ourselves. The thrill wasn't, as it so often is these days, about feeling like pop stars shared our experiences per se. It was the opposite, knowing that we'd never be that hot or hit that octave or gracefully leap into a headstand. That was the fun. Usher, who dominated the space between classic R&B and TRL-era pop megastardom in the late 90s and early 2000s, stands as one of the last true representatives of these old-school, spectacle-driven pop values, a heavenly singer and truly jaw-dropping dancer and performer who delighted with skill and style rather than quote-unquote authenticity and made a panoply of epic-era-defining hits on the way. Indeed, I'm not sure we'll ever get a pop star like Usher again, and his status as perhaps the last of a dying breed makes his storied career, in all of its glitzy sheen, something truly worth celebrating. Usher Raymond IV was born in Dallas, Texas in 1978, but spent most of his childhood in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Usher's father left the family when he was young, and he was raised primarily by his mother, Janetta. I feel almost insane saying this sentence yet again, but as appears to be almost de rigueur for American pop singers, Usher discovered his voice while singing in church as a child, and his buttery, dynamic, three-octave range, as well as his effervescent charm and good looks, was so notable that by the time he was 10 years old, it was clear to both him and his family that he should pursue a music career. As such, they relocated to Atlanta, a hub for hip-hop and R&B, where Usher fronted the short-lived boy band New Beginnings, which ultimately went nowhere. Usher's life changed forever, though, when, at 13, while performing on Star Search, an executive from the storied LaFace Records was impressed enough by his performance of the Boys to Men classic End of the Road to arrange an audition with label empresario L.A. Reid, who then proceeded to sign young Usher on the spot. But his music career took a minute to come together. 
Reed first sent the 15-year-old Usher to New York to go to quote-unquote flavor camp with bad boy founder, producer, and rapper Puff Daddy, an experience Usher later described as the hardest of his life and which eventually led to his self-titled 1994 debut album produced by Puffy. A surprisingly sex-forward and yet totally boilerplate R&B record, Usher's debut sold moderately well, moving around half a million copies in the U.S., but failed to make him a superstar. Everything changed, though, when Usher developed a friendship with super producer Jermaine Dupree, who agreed to help him develop his sound and construct his sophomore album 1997's My Way. Powered by forward-thinking, slinky R&B production and Usher's gloriously rich performances and effortless, approachable sex appeal, the record was a smash, selling 8 million copies worldwide and producing three indelible hits. The number three peaking title track, the chart-topping slow jam Nice and Slow, and the seductive, minimalist banger revolving around what would become Usher's favorite topic, a perilous love triangle, You Make Me Wanna. Usher followed up his breakthrough success with My Way four years later with an even bigger one, his third album, 2001's 8701. Here, Usher expanded his sonic palette, collaborating with Dupree again, but also adding R&B stalwarts Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and futurist hip-hop producers The Neptunes into the mix to create records both steeped in R&B tradition and undeniably forward-thinking. 8701 spun off another fistful of classics, from the number one hits, the airy bounce of You Remind Me and the superlative Usher heartache anthem You Got It Bad, to the number three peaking cutting-edge club banger You Don't Have to Call. The record sold another 8 million copies and, along with its suite of interconnected music videos starring then-girlfriend Chili of TLC, officially solidified Usher as one of the premier performers, dancers, celebrities, and hit makers of the moment, equally embraced by more classically-minded R&B and hip-hop heads as he was by the TRL crowd. But it was his next album, 2004's concept record Confessions, that would be his magnum opus. Here, Usher mined both his own breakup with Chili, as well as the experience of his myriad collaborators, including Dupree, Jamin Lewis, and Just Blaze, to unfurl on wax the aftermath of a man who cheats on his girlfriend and gets the other woman pregnant. A dazzlingly ambitious record loaded with pathos, intricately rendered emotional strife, and a wheelbarrow's full of some of the greatest R&B records of the century, Confessions is not only Usher's high watermark artistically, elegantly walking the line between concept-driven R&B-steeped specificity and unmistakably centrist pop music, but also maybe the last true blockbuster this side of Adele. The record sold 20 million copies worldwide and produced four number one hits. The Alicia Keys duet My Boo, the album centerpiece title track Confessions Part 2, the epic breakup barn burner for the ages Burn, and of course, the Crunkin' Bee classic Yeah featuring Ludacris and Little John. The blockbuster success of Confessions, though, has proven to be both the crown jewel of Usher's career as well as its curse, at once setting the template for what his music could and should be at its best, but the commercial and creative highs of which also quickly proved to cast a long and perhaps burdensome shadow. Usher didn't release a follow-up until 2008's Here I Stand. In the interim, he'd married his stylist Tamika Foster and had a child. Joyous life events, no doubt, but ones that seemed to zap his music of its signature bombastic emotion 
emotional conflict. Here I Stand did produce the number one hit Love in This Club, but failed to get a second single off the ground and sold less than one-fifth of what Confessions had in the US. He quickly followed it up with 2010's Raymond vs. Raymond, which promised a return to the melodrama of Confessions following his sudden break from Foster. But instead, in spite of some unexpected career highlights, mostly featured vapid retreads and trend hopping, notably on the utterly insipid Will I Am produced Auto 2 Nightmare number one, Oh My God. Usher has released two more records in the 2010s, including 2012's Dalliance with Electronic Experimentalism, Looking for Myself, and 2016's Exploration of Modern Alt-R&B, Hard to Love. While neither has restored Usher's commercial fortunes to their mid-2000s peak, both have vastly improved on Usher's earlier post-confessions output and produced some of his best songs, including 2012's Diplo-produced hit Climax, a minimalist quiet storm EDM stunner which restored Usher's glorious once-in-a-lifetime voice as well as his ability to use it to render delicate emotionality to the fore where they belong once again. Usher has sold over 80 million records worldwide, making him one of the best-selling musical artists of all time. He has nine number one singles and 19 top tens. In 2009, Billboard named him the most successful artist of the 2000s. He's won eight Grammy Awards, 34 ASCAP Awards, nine Soul Train Awards, and eight American Music Awards. He also owns his own successful record label, Raymond Braun Media Group, famous for discovering and signing superstar Justin Bieber. Here with me to discuss the career and confessions of the great Usher is returning champ, Rawia Khmer. All right, so I am here once again with Rawia Khmer, assistant professor at Syracuse University and returning Pot Pantheon champion, Rawia. Welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. Our Justin Bieber episodes, both the secret one that no one will ever hear and the one that did eventually come to life are two of my favorites and one of the listener favorites as well. So it's a thrill. My absolute pleasure. There's actually going to be a little Justin Bieber talk today, maybe. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I feel like we're closing a loop here because Justin Bieber's career was obviously materially impacted, both in an artistic sense and in terms of his just trajectory into the music industry by today's subject, Usher. So I feel like somehow you're a correspondent for this entire like cinematic universe. <laughs> I don't know who else is I in it. I think it's though. just like Pooh Bear. That's he's the only he's the, he's the third <laughs> member of the <laughs> triumvirate. Not Pooh Bear. <laughs> I'm very excited to have this conversation with you because Usher is someone that I grew up with. Was a huge part of my like musical foundations as a pop music consumer also as a budding sexual being. <laughs> and I really had a blast going back through, especially the like early parts of his music, because he's really made an astounding amount of classic hits that have held up incredibly well. And he also 
was really striking to me in this go around just as a pure vocalist. And I'm curious how you feel about that because that was the thing that I think I maybe walked away with more than anything from my listen through to prepare for our conversation today is like Usher is a, not only just a powerful vocalist, but a very like well-trained and restrained vocalist who like knows how to convey true soul without pushing it too hard. And that was one of the main things that was hitting me over and over again as I listened to his music this time. Yeah, I feel like that's actually probably his foremost quality is not just his like natural singing ability, but what he does with his vocals, even like in his speaking voice, right? Like one of the reasons that NPR Tiny Desk went viral, I think earlier this summer, after we had already agreed to talk about Usher, I should say. Of course. No, we um, manifested absolutely. that. Absolutely. And one yeah. of the reasons I think it went viral is because he commands the mic whether he's singing or speaking, right? So he has control over his vocals, even just in his speaking voice, right? It's like the super rich textured mm. tone. Really have fun today. This office party that we're having. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. So let's get right into it, you know? Yeah. And he is probably, maybe not one of the last, but he sort of rounds out this class of R&B singers who are trained in the church. We don't get enough of that mm. these days, I think. I think that's one of the mm. things the landscape is missing. So you can hear that all over his vocal ability, too. Sometimes, I think, to the extent that it overshadows his artistry, right? So we think of him more as a singer than as an artist, but we'll get into that later. Oh, that's really interesting. And I agree with you because one thing that was difficult to track was like a true evolution in the artistic persona. Cause I feel like there isn't a ton to get into there. And that's been an interesting thing in the latter part of his career. At a certain point, there was like a stunted growth that feels like it started to set in. But what I also like on the positive end of things is that he also, I think, maybe is one of the last of a generation of R&B singers, as you were saying, that came up in the church. But I also think kind of one of the last true, like, showman pop stars, especially in the male space. Like, he really is in cahoots with Beyonce in this way because they're kind of the last of a dying breed of, like, true old school entertainment values, the dancing, the singing, the sort of broad musical persona, although Beyonce has refined that over time, and the ability to really give you a show in that old school way that's not about accessibility, but about virtuosity. He, I feel like he's one of the last of those too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really one of the things that stood out to me in thinking through his career these past couple of days is that Beyonce is really his primary counterpart, right? Maybe not mm. on a musical level, but if you look at the sort of infrastructure that created them, I think in many ways, both Beyonce and Usher are among the last pop stars we have today who both benefited from and also were victims of the major label system mm. in a way that we really don't see that much anymore. They also were literally hanging out together, right? Like in their training days in Atlanta. Did you know this? No. Oh, yeah. He would like show up at their door. Oh. Yeah, they like knew each other. I was wondering because, I mean, they have Love in This Club Part 2 as a record that they do together, but there's all these kind of weird moments where like he's the star of the Naughty Girl video and she pops up in that like classic 
horrific performance of Bad Girl on Truth Tour, whatever the fuck it was called, and just like dances like a showgirl to yeah. Bad Girl. Yeah, so they really did come up together. And it's worth noting that they've known each other, what, probably like 30 years now. So mm-hmm. they were teenagers at the same time. They were both child stars in a sense. Like Usher hit before Destiny's Child did, but they both spent years and years sort of grinding on the talent circuit, on this behind the scenes in our circuit, like really refining their showmanship, their approach to performance. And so, yeah, there's like literal overlap and then there's conceptual overlap in terms of where their careers ended up. Yes, so fascinating, true. I mean, conceptual overlap, I mean, both fascinated and defined in their artistry by acts of infidelity. And also- (laughs) True. Yes, they are- reflections of a divergence in the wood where Beyonce was kind of able to transition from a sort of exclusively showmanship old school sort of pop star into a artist of more depth of unfurling layers of depth which I think is demanded of pop stars as they age and demanded of pop stars increasingly just in the current pop firmament. But Usher, and we'll get to this later when we talk about his later career, I think has struggled to do what she did in terms of deepening his artistry and persona beyond some of those surface appealing elements in a way that would draw the audience into some of his like latter work. And I think his career has been interesting in the last, whatever, 10, 15 years because he hasn't quite cracked that code in the same way that she has. Yeah, and what I've been asking myself is, does he want to? Right. right. Like, I think right. there are different levels of ambition happening there. And he appears to be fairly content with being a hit maker, right? Mm. Like, and just doing what he does and doing it well, but leaving things at a surface level. And yeah. not to get all Zodiac man on you, but <laughs> he's a Libra and she's a Virgo, right? Like, right. I think we can attribute a lot. I, I can attribute a lot of those differences to those qualities, right? So he's really skilled in so many ways, but we never really go beyond the surface with him. Well, this is our chance. So let's go beyond the surface a little bit. Can you share a bit about Usher's backstory, where he grew up, what his upbringing was like, how he discovers his passion for singing and this ambition, I guess, for pop star? Yeah, so Usher grows up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Around the same time, down the road in Memphis is Justin Timberlake, should be pointed out. Usher is raised by his mom and his grandmother, I believe. I don't think his father's in the picture. So he spends a lot of time with his grandmother, goes to church with her, and ends up becoming a singer in the church and through that I believe ends up joining a starter boy band that um, was (laughs) sort of like required at the time. Uh, right. What were they? They were called like... They new, were called New Beginnings. New Beginnings. <laughs> N-U Beginnings. Yes, exactly. The most so 90s boy band to... name of all time. But the group doesn't, I don't think they really make it very far. No, but he has obviously that weird, preternatural, charismatic for a kid vibe that he kind of retains through his latter career too. Oh yeah. Like in addition to being a singer, he's, a charmer, like that's who right. he is. Right. Uh, it's almost, it's almost kind of weird to think that he didn't come out of Nickelodeon or you know Disney yes. or you know right. he has the vibe of industry child star. Except it was natural, and his family picks up on this, and so they end up moving to Atlanta to give young Usher a chance to figure out what he's going to do with his music career. So how does he end up in the world of LaFace Records, and eventually under the tutelage, quote unquote, of Puff? 
daddy in the mid to late 90s. So he, a couple decades before Justin Bieber does this, is hanging out in Atlanta singing for people. Like it's a classic, (laughs) just show up and open your mouth, see what happens. And he sings a classic R&B song. And, you know, keep in mind at this point, he's pretty young. Like he's probably about 13 or 14. So Mm -hmm. he auditions for LA, who at the time is hit maker, star maker, anointer, and gets signed on the spot. Got down on one knee and he sang Boys to Men's End of the Road. He really charmed the girls in my office. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe this little kid was doing all the things he was doing. Getting in their face, kissing their hands. Kid in school who never stopped singing, right? Like, yes, yes. there's absolutely no reason for you to be singing right now. Like, it's 7 a.m. We're in homeroom, yes. but that's Usher, I think. That's that's my impression of him, and it works. And so he gets this deal. There's a couple of rough years there where they're trying to figure out what his sound is going to be, how he's going to fit into the landscape. At this point, the early 90s, things are starting to change on a cultural level for the music industry. We're in the hip-hop generation. Right. And from a commercial perspective, but also just from like an audience perspective, room for more and more black singers, black male singers, who end up sort of being positioned in opposition to the rappers of that hip-hop generation. Right. So Mm -hmm. that ends up shaping a lot of Usher's early career, musically that is, but culturally he gets sent up to New York City to hang out with the man then known as Puff Daddy, sure. uh, who himself who should was... still be known as Puff Daddy in my opinion. He, I don't think you know, any of these name changes have improved upon you, the original. You, you're not into brother love? No. <laughs> Yeah, so Puff Daddy, Mr. Sean Combs, or he's on the verge of doing some big things in the music industry. And Mm -hmm. essentially, Usher gets sent to like an informal training situation. I think he was probably just like sleeping on Puffy's floor and just like going to parties and probably engaging in things that a 14, 15 year old shouldn't have been. But he sort of develops a persona, right? Like we know he, he can sing, confident in his singing ability. And now he just has to develop a persona. He has to develop a style and he has to find a home for himself in the music world. It's interesting because Puffy, as you were talking about, sort of sits at this interesting nexus point between pop, hip hop, and R&B in what he's doing because what Rawi is referencing here as where Puffy's about to emerge in a big way is with Notorious B.I.G., who is in some ways one of the first real pop star rappers. One of the first rappers in this wave where hip hop music is becoming pop music and Biggie notoriously, no pun intended, (laughs) walks this line on his debut record, Ready to Die, between sort of these like classic boom bap, quote unquote gangster rap songs, and these sort of like super shiny, R&B pop versions of hip hop that are new and are Puffy's trademarks. These are sort of the records that are like fusing the world of pop, hip hop, and R&B and making rappers into pop stars. So... I really find it interesting that Puffy also plays an integral role in a person like Usher, who really represents more from the pop direction, I think, coming in. One of the only males of his generation that really fits into that mold, because as I'm sure we're going to talk about, there aren't a ton of black male 
pop figures in this particular era. There's R&B stars, but by the time Usher's really emerging and having his success in the late 90s, he's kind of in a lane by himself as a pop star that is treading the line between hip-hop, R&B, and pop. Yeah, I think that's really accurate. I mean, one of Puffy's biggest successes is in his work with Mary J. Blige, right? Who is the defining hip-hop and R&B artist. And she brings her Yonkers swag to her singing, and it's just natural, right? And that's something that we see more and more of the early to mid and then eventually late 90s. But in terms of male R&B crooners, in 94, when Usher releases his debut, it's Voice to Men. Kevin Mm. Campbell. My man, Tevin. Exactly. The original. There's sort of like this opposition with the other celebrities that are emerging, right? In the sense that they're they're sort of like a softer, safer, more accessible, middle-class black persona as opposed to like Mm. the rugged and unruly rappers, right? Like Mm. the Tupacs and the Nazis and the Wu-Tangs, right? Like this is a little simplified version of rap history, but you can sort of see the sort of intentional softness that is coming through in male R&B and for which I think there is actually a little bit of nostalgia right Mm. now. (laughs) So, okay. He goes and lives with Puffy. They do this thing I think called a flavor camp, which like I can't even imagine what the fuck that is. But basically, from my understanding, a very young Usher, and I do think this is important because I want to come back to this and when we get start kind of getting into more of his core music history, I think a young Usher is exposed to things in this period. I think Usher himself has spoken about this that like probably a 14 or 15 year old boy like should not be exposed to. Orgies and drug and alcohol use. and, And the other thing that I want to touch on before we dive into his first couple of songs is that I think Bring Up Mary J. Blige is so astute because Usher's, of course he's in the lineage of like Michael. Of course he's also in the lineage of some of these R&B singers of the early 90s that we've been talking about. Tevin, Boys to Men, Bobby Brown, you know, whatever. But in terms of sort of like the slick and pop oriented, but also grounded in hip hop, mode that I think Usher operates in in a lot of his peak music and especially in a lot of his earlier music is very much more happening with women like it feels more in conversation to me with as you mentioned Mary J. Blige with Monica with Brandy of course who I feel like is a really important compatriot of Usher's Brandy's maybe one of the most apt comparisons because she's also someone that's like part and parcel with hip hop culture. Her music's in conversation with hip hop culture, but she's also like very clearly like a pop figure and is able to, especially as her career goes on, like cross over quote unquote and become a mainstream MTV pop star. So I think bring up these women is a very interesting and important facet of this. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. When you really try to figure out like who are his peers, right? Who are the people that he came up with, that he competed with, that he trained with? They are mostly women like TLC, 
right? Eventually you get, you know, Destiny's Child and Beyonce, you know, of course, Brandy and Monica. It sort of works to his favor in the sense that he's the heartthrob in his his community, right? Right. So, you -hmm. know, there's rumors that will never go away about the boy's mind actually being about Usher, right? That they were (laughs) fighting over him. I don't think that's quite true. It's fun to believe it. Fun to believe it, exactly. And believable because he's such a little, like, pimpin' heartthrob. Listen, I mean, those dimples, like, I would also, you know, engage in a sing-off. Listen, he's, like, somehow at once cherubic and childlike, and also you know he is a dog at the same time. He's a sex symbol. He's a teen sex symbol. He maintains that status for a really long time. Even though a lot of the early music, which I was listening to, was super sexual in retrospect, and I had a massive crush on him. I thought of him as safe, approachable, right. boy next door. Your this mom would be okay with him, right? In yes. fact, my mom is who introduced me to Usher. He's that kind of like, it's the dimples, the charm, all yes. of it. He has that going for him. This is the magic of the Usher persona that is going to only be refined on his later music is that you feel like at once you could bring him home to your mother, as you said, and he would be an absolute charmer and she would love him. But at the same time, you kind of get the impression that he was like fucking everybody on the low. Like, it's a really weird combo. I never, I never thought that. Like, no? You listen I to okay. I was probably I was probably too young. It's, it's listen, you know, though. I was listen, probably though. too young. So his first song is called Call Me Mac, which is on the Poetic Justice soundtrack. And that leads to his debut album which is self-titled and comes out when he is 15 years old and is led off by Can You Get With It, which is like kind of an R. Kelly core song in which this 15-year-old boy is literally saying, it's only a sexual thing. It was really striking to me to hear that because with the white pop stars, and I think we should talk about this along racial lines in terms of over-sexualizing a black child, essentially. But like the whole story was they starred in Disney. This is like Britney and Justin and they're super chaste and they have purity rings and they're da-da-da-da-da. And then they have to go through this whole transition. I was fascinated listening to this early music, less so because the music itself is that interesting, but I was incredibly struck listening to this 15-year-old boy say it's only a sexual thing. That's an intense thing, but maybe also more in standing with what an actual 15-year-old is really like? I'm not sure. Maybe there was something about that first album, those first few songs that didn't seem authentically Usher. So I think there was a part of me that interpreted Mm. them as just like, okay, like he's been handed these songs in the same way. Not to, you know, take away from the work that goes into, into performing those songs, but in a way that it's like, he's just singing songs that these older people wrote. And he's, as opposed to someone like an NSYNC or a Britney or a Christina, he's not trying to reach an audience through Disney, right? He's trying to reach an audience directly, which means that there were probably people who were a lot older than 15 who were listening to those songs, right? Like he was a teen, but he wasn't a teeny bopper. He was just an R&B singer is how I always interpreted it. No, it does give Kid very well impersonating older stars that he was probably looking up to. It has a Michael quality in that way. You know what I mean? Totally, totally. And when we get to his second album, My Way, which ends up being a significant breakthrough, still have a lot of sexual stuff happening on there too. It's 
filtered more through his own voice. Yes, and he's also 17 or 18. It's a different yeah, story. Totally, totally. People change a lot from 1450 to yeah. 17, 18. But I mean, I, I like believe it more, right? Like it sounds like it's coming from him. Whereas before, it's just sort of paint by numbers, sexual yes. R&B. I think it speaks to the quality we were talking about earlier about kind of the showmanship. Like he was almost like studied, he'd studied what contemporary 25-year-old R&B singers were singing about. And he was able to like impersonate it perfectly, but yeah. yet it probably wasn't like true to him. How could it have been, I guess? Like, yeah, he also was hanging out with 25-year-olds, right? Like, Yeah, I'm just laughing at the lyric, come to my room, let me take off all your clothes. Like, And, and then you see him so on the cover ridiculous. and he looks like a fucking fourth grader. <laughs> yeah, like the babiest face of baby faces. Yes. He sort of had to prove his adulthood, in a sense, to alleviate concerns about his voice changing, mm. something that Justin Bieber ends up dealing with a little bit down the line. But I sure. think there was a strategic, if uncomfortable or inappropriate, motivation in painting him as older than he was, right? right. So this is someone that can be around for a while. He's not just a one-hit wonder whose voice is going to change and then can't sustain a career. So he releases this record, as you insinuated, it's not a particularly huge success. A couple of these songs seem like they chart on R&B charts in the lower rungs, but they're not exactly smash hits. And Usher makes a few notable changes between this release and 1997. The most notable to me are that his mother takes over as his manager in this period. She steps in as, as his manager between his first and second albums, but he in some ways gets more of a voice, right? He becomes more independent. Yeah, and some right. of that is a factor of age, but I also sure. think some of it is just about the fact that he has this freedom or the empowerment from his mom to make more decisions, be more involved in what his career is going to do. So what ends up happening next is really notable, right? So he's back in Atlanta, right? He's mm -hmm. no longer living on puppies. He, he left the flavor camp is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> He left the flavor camp um, and he strikes up this relationship with, as I understand it, he does this personally, right? Like he builds oh. a personal relationship with Jermaine Dupri, right. a big producer, ends up being an even bigger producer himself, much like Diddy, an architect of the hip hop, pop, R&B crossover that shapes a lot of the 90s. And they get really close musically and they sort of develop a playful, cheeky, but still safe for mom, new direction for Usher mm -hmm. to take musically. What is Jermaine's story prior to Usher? Like, what is he doing? Is there things we can pick up on from pre-Usher Jermaine songs that help us, like, understand what Jermaine is bringing to Usher in this period? I think he actually starts out as an industry person. So he's been around music for a while. Many of us know him as a person who put together Escape. helps make them a important voice in R&B pop music right around the time that Usher is himself emerging. He works with acts like DeBrat, right? One of the biggest mm -hmm. female rappers of the day. Mariah Carey, of course. And he has this like signature that Usher ends up using quite well, which is a sort of guitar 
plus mm-hmm. hi-hat sound. Which you can hear on Always Be My Baby. Yeah, exactly. He's kind of part of this wave of futurist R&B producers. If Usher's first album is sort of tied to this Mary J. Blige, What's the 411, boom bap, R&B, drum machine, hip-hop adjacent R&B music, there's a whole generation that I sort of think of as a group, which is like Rodney Jerkins, Timberland, Pharrell, Shakespeare, whatever that guy's name is, Kevin Briggs. Kevin Briggs. Yes. And Jermaine, who are like synthesizing R&B music, taking R&B music into the computer age, essentially. And like then sort of offsetting that, as you're pointing out, with acoustic elements. So you've got a lot of these songs that are dealing with these like hyper computerized R&B beats and then sort of cutting that with these really interesting uses of like harpsichords, guitars, and as you said, like some hi-hat stuff. I think of Jermaine kind of adjacent to that movement as well. Yeah, for sure. That's a great point. And you know, a lot of it, Mm -hmm. listening to it from the vantage point of 2022, you can sort of pick up on the fact that there are a lot of early experimentations happening with hardware and software presets, right? right? So the sounds aren't always particularly rich. Right. Right. So a lot of what happens is that the vocalists end up having to fill in some of the coldness of the sounds, which again, because there's new technology for a lot of people, you know, you hear a lot of just like presets, right? You hear a lot of things that come pre-programmed with the software, right? So there's like this new, more rhythmic approach to Mm. Mm R&B, definitely pop friendly, right? You can imagine hearing a lot of those songs at the mall, but still (laughs) has the sort of soulfulness of someone like an Usher or a Brandy who are warm, textured, competent singers. Yes, soul singers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting artistic choice that's being made that also highlights the extent of Usher's success being based on his ability to sort of move with the trends, Mm. right? He's definitely not behind on the trends, never the first person to try something, but he pulls it off really well, right? So we hear a lot of that on My Way. Let's talk about the songs on My Way and particularly about the three definitive singles, which are You Make Me Wanna, Nice and Slow, and My Way, this title track. How would you describe the sound of these songs, either individually or in tandem with each other? And what is the sort of on-record perspective Persona that Usher is establishing with these records. So, with these three songs, we actually get, I think, a pretty useful way to categorize his music in general, which is that yes. there is a ballad. Grown and sexy. Let me take you to a place nice and quiet. There ain't no one better to Ain't got a rush. I just wanna take it nice and slow. It's a hip-hop ballad, right? Yes, right. You get like a mid-tempo song with You Make Me Wanna. And then you get something that's a little bit more upbeat with My Weight. three songs, even though they're each really, really different, Mm -hmm. you see Usher experimenting with his voice, his persona, his Mm -hmm. delivery, right? There's some rapping happening. There is some classic singing happening. Now tell me, do you want to get free? I 
Um, and then there's also this more staccato rhythmic experimentation mm -hmm. in between. And each of those, I think, brings out like a different part of his persona, right? So there's like the like smooth, silky bedroom usher who's already been established. Right. Then there's like this party boy usher, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a wink happening. And then there's just a sort of like fun, playful, bombastic, but mom friendly leader of the pack. Bombastic, but mom friendly is you just know, perfection. Yeah, like he seems like a good time. Yeah. One thing that really intrigued me, first of all, aside from the fact that he sounds absolutely incredible on all of these records, the word restraint kept popping into my head. I mean, so many pop singers, especially of a young age who can really sing, don't understand the nuances of how to like make their voice dynamic on record. And Usher is a great soul singer. Like he can convey true soul, true pathos in his singing, even from a young age, in a way that really does remind me of Michael, like way more so than like Justin or anything. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's also another Beyonce thing, right? Like yes. never the most technically born with the most talent, right? Like yeah. Ashley James of Girls Time was a much better <laughs> technical singer than Beyonce. Go off for Ashley James. In like studying, right? Like in like paying attention in the studio and hanging out with people who are a lot older than you, you yes. know, learning the sort of thing that bridges music and emotion. And then yes. Usher finds a lot of success there, right? Like he can sing, but he can perform. He can really, really turn a song into a moment. And he's incredibly convincing as a sexual person. That is his calling card. And I want to get into the themes of sex as it defines Usher's persona on record because there's a way in which to frame Usher's discography in both the joys of libidinous carnal energy and then the way that that sort of like is his downfall that is the undercurrent of a lot of themes of usher's records is like both how much like he really enjoys fucking and also how much he enjoys fucking like ruins his life is the sort of like thematic arc of usher's music that's and I so funny oh my god <laughs> well uh, my mind is just blown because I because I disagree, actually. Okay, go on. I think absolutely sexual being, right? Like, yeah. he's very good at that, and he yeah. makes that very clear. It's mm -hmm. very important to him. But I think in terms of his musical choices, it's almost more that there are, like, ethical dilemmas that he's engaged in. It's almost like a proto-Drake in yes. a way. I think one of the reasons that he never struck me as, like, a dirty dog type <laughs> R&B singer like some of his peers, even though he sings a lot about sex and a lot about women, yeah. every sexual song still has a conceit, right? Like there's yes. like a conceptual yes. love song thing happening, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So maybe he's just so convincing that I didn't see or that I haven't seen the downfall part of it that you're um I mean, to. we'll talk about it on Confessions, no? We'll talk about it on Confessions, yeah. sure. Yeah. I love what you're saying here. And that was the other thing I was going to bring up is that he has this thread of songs that are about psychological conflict. And he lays them out in incredibly intricate ways and increasingly intricate ways through these first couple records. You Make Me Wanna is fascinating to me in this way, both for the production elements that we talked about before, the sort of plucked guitars, the irregular rhythms. There's this sort of devil and angel on the shoulder narrative that runs through this song and that he returns to a lot on record. Like where he goes, what should I do? Should I tell my baby bye-bye? Should I do exactly what I feel inside? I don't want to go. I don't want to stay. What should I do? Should I tell my baby bye-bye? Should I do exactly what I feel inside? I don't want to go. Don't need to stay. But I really need to get it together. What 
this like thread of almost like psychodrama anxiety that runs through a lot of Usher songs and he narrates his thoughts. That's like a thing that Usher often does as a lyrical conceit on many of his hit records. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of lends to this idea of him being emotionally intelligent or at least more emotionally yes. aware than a yes. lot of his male Agreed. peers. Maybe I believed it a little too hard. I interpreted that as him being the good guy, right? Not that that's a real thing. The male feminist is always the worst, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. There's just something about it that's so sweet in the sense that he just wants to be loved and love, right? Like, I, I need to it. have a conversation with my teen self, I think, is what's emerging here. I'm totally, I'm hearing you and I'm rethinking some of my thoughts here because not here, but on some of the later records, and I think we can definitely talk about this in the context of You Remind Me. Sometimes I feel like he's so self-involved that it's not particularly appealing in a sense. You know, when a guy is just like, I'm so sensitive and here's all the ways, it's like, ask me a question. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, sometimes I get that vibe from him a little bit but I do love in a musical sense the way that these lyrics are written and that a lot of his lyrics are written as sort of like a almost play-by-play -play of his thinking about some of these things is like right. a very effective lyrical conceit that he conveys really well <laughs> and I think one of the other things you're making me think of in terms of you make me wanna is the interplay between the role sex and like his desire for sex plays in his traditional versus like maybe a non-traditional impulse in like what he wants. Cause the song goes something like, think about a ring and all the things that come along with it. Negotiation between like whether he wants to be in a traditional relationship or he, whether he'd rather be kind of like a player, you know? I think the idea of him wrestling with all of his assumptions about monogamy, he comes across as extremely straight, right? Very straight. He almost makes it seem like a burden, right? Like yes, it's, it's yes. very Drake in that way. It's very, yes. oh I'm God. buying these Birkins for my future wife. But, ah, um, it but, is Drake. It is Drake. But you know, the like Libra-ness of it, yes. ultimately like trying to find some sort of balance, trying to find some sort of conclusion, I think makes him come across to me, or historically has anyway, as less dangerous than a Scorpio like Drake. Maybe it's something that we're like circling around between the two of us and our differing perspectives on the sexuality is perhaps it just comes so naturally to him. that, And that's what we're both almost saying in a way. It's like, he's so naturally kind of sexy in a way that doesn't feel like he's pushing it. It's kind of similar to the way he sings that like, it is maybe a burden. Like he almost can't control the fact <laughs> that he's hot. You know what I mean? <laughs> God gave him those abs, you know, he gets to use them for something. He can get away yeah. with a lot of shit with that face. You know what I mean? And yeah, I was like, no, you know I mean? totally, like, totally. Yeah, it's and it's kind of like the, if I acknowledge it, that makes it okay. But I do also think that there are moments early on, much more than we're hearing from many of his peers, where he does seem to be concerned with making sure that his partner is satisfied, right? Or like, yes, right. He appears much more generous as a lover on yes. record at yes. a time when macho norms made that less appealing for a celebrity to do, right? Like straight yes. men were pretending that they didn't care about I, uh, yes, no, you're so right. I mean, Nice and Slow really speaks to that. I mean, there's something incredibly tender about that song. Like, it feels emotionally available in a way that's not just about, like, hey, I'm the lover man and, like, blah, 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 blah. Even though it is incredibly slinky and sexy <laughs> at the same time, he sort of says, tell me, do you want to get freaky? You know, <laughs> like, I'll make you feel like no one has ever made you feel like promise. You know, it's you know? so corny. It is so corny and the cliche is just pile up. Yes. But I do think there is so much more acknowledgement of 
the other person in the equation than yeah. I think I was used to hearing at the time. I get you on that. Oh my god, this is like therapy. I think I just reached some conclusions, or I think I understand <laughs> myself a whole lot more in having this conversation about Usher. Yeah, I'm so glad that. <laughs> The unintended <laughs> consequences of Pop Pantheon is everybody walks away knowing just a little bit more about what's wrong with them. So My Way is a huge success. I think it sells 8 million records. He's part of the teen pop boom, essentially. Although also to the left of it in a kind of a good way where he's also still taken more seriously, it feels like. Right. That's the thing. It's like he's taken more seriously than some of his classic pop contemporaries. Yes, right. But he's also in a different lane than his R&B contemporaries, right? Mm-hmm. So he's not doing the same things as like Genuine, for instance. Right. Or great, like great people counter. who are also making really, really great music, but who mm-hmm. haven't quite straddled the what at the time would have been called urban right. and mainstream divides, right? Usher is just like in the middle and he seems equally at home in both of those places, right? So he's more pop than someone like Genuine, but a lot more credible as an artist yes. than Britney. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. And I also think he's someone that adults are comfortable liking in a way that adults would not have been comfortable maybe liking and sync. You know what I mean? I think there's something to be said about the effectiveness of having never positioned him as like a Disney-type teen pop star. Like, it's funny to think of him as a mentor to Justin Bieber because as we covered ad nauseum in our episode, you know, he had to really fight his way out of that teen star box. But Usher never really had to do that, I feel like, from the beginning by presenting as like a fully fleshed out grown sexual being he never really had to have that struggle of like how do I get people to take me seriously as an adult like he just kind of arrived that way even as he was also the same age as the people that were struggling with it so Usher takes a chunk of time between his second record My Way in 97 and his third record 8701 which we know exactly the date it came out because he literally (laughs) named the record in a purely insane commercial gambit after the release date of it so people would never forget 8701 so what's your understanding of a what's going on in the interim here in terms of usher's like evolution as a person and artist and then what the expansion or evolution of usher's aesthetic sound themes are on this third album there's actually a lot that happens in those two years right both Culturally, but also for Usher. So Mm -hmm. the age difference between being 17, 18 when My Way came out and then being Mm -hmm. in his early 20s as this massive pop star by the time 8701 comes out really, really shows itself, right? Like Mm -hmm. we really, really see that gap, right? That there's a clear difference between who he was on My Way and who he is on 8701, right? He's lost a little bit of the baby fat, right? (laughs) Like he's really leaning into the party boy thing. He has sort of survived some not quite scandals but celebrity rumor mill that really starts to take off in the late 90s right so between my way and 8701 is when it was like okay is he dating beyonce is he dating monica or brandy by the time 8701 comes out he's dating chili right from and that's public knowledge or it's speculated and then eventually is confirmed right you know she's a little bit older than him if i yeah she's six years older than him a lot of artists suffer from quote-unquote sophomore curse right like Mm -hmm. how are you going to follow up your first big success Mm -hmm. but he already kind of did right because his sophomore album was his massive breakthrough so now it becomes about figuring out how he's going to demonstrate that four years have passed and you've been up to some things Mm -hmm. personally 
and musically. 8701, it's really dark and twisted, right? Like, he's almost seems spurned in a way, right? It feels like he's had his first big breakup and mm-hmm. he's trying to, like, dust his shoulders off from that. So we see him expanding the roster of who he collaborates with yes. in terms of producers and songwriters. We hear the beginnings of the classic Usher Neptune's dynamic. Mm-hmm. So good. Justin wishes. I c- if you're referring to You Don't Have to Call, which becomes the third single of this record, it is the superlative Neptune's pop crossover song, in my personal opinion. Those cascading, bloopy, blippy synthesizers and that skeletal funk beat. A lyric on that song also points to what you're saying about the persona, which is like, I'm too young of a guy to be home waiting for love, so tonight I'm gonna do what a young man does, and that's party. which maybe is the jumping off point for like some of the themes of this record. Yeah, absolutely. So the first single on this record is You Remind Me. Produced by the legendary Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Who he works with on a handful of tracks over the years. Yes. You Remind Me being in many ways like the classic Usher single in that Mm. it's light, it's airy in the Mm. vocals, it's bouncy, Mm. but it has a a kind of twisted story when you look at what he's actually singing about. (laughs) Right. The musicality that he accesses almost obscures the extent to which he's engaging in that sort of like navel gazy. <laughs> I'm the good guy thing, yes, right? That thing, yes. I, As you were sort of getting at, he really does well on these songs where he's in deep conflict about wanting to fuck somebody, but also feeling like he can't for various reasons. Listen, see the thing about you that caught my eye is the same thing that makes me change my mind. Kind of hard to explain, but girl, I'll try. You need to sit down, this may take a while. See this girl, she sort of looks just like you. I actually am coming around a little to your perspective on it because there's something sort of sweet about the fact that he doesn't just want to have sex with this girl. He is weirdly being sensitive to her in that way. But I also think it's important to point out that in the video for this song, he's sort of directly referencing some of the things that were happening in the tabloids during right. that time, right? Chili is actually in the video. Remember having lunchroom arguments with friends about, is that supposed to be Brandy? Is that supposed to be Monica? Like, right. I, I remember it being like a direct reference to the public narrative around Usher, or sort of taking advantage of the rumors and the gossip. Which is something he gets really good at on Confessions, like how to parlay that in a Taylor Swiftian way into interest in the music, you know? 
Absolutely. He ends up peaking, but 8701 is really where he starts to learn a lot of those lessons and about how to leverage them. So again, we sort of get this triad of yes. the three usher modes, right? There mm-hmm. is the sort of mid-tempo, you remind me. Complete with internal conflict, of course. Required. There's party usher on you don't have to call. And then there's this achy, you got it bad. And you know, that song is just an incredible oh. vocal performance, oh my right? God. He like so fucking amazing. It's almost unbelievable. Yes. To me, You Got It Bad is Usher's greatest emotional performance mm. on record. He just really sounds like he's going through yes. it. All my people know what's going on. Look at your mate. Help me sing my song. Tell her I'm your man. You're my girl. I'm going to tell it to the whole wide world. Real vulnerability. He can really convey pathos and vulnerability in a very effective way. Without leaning into the overly yes. like dramatic yes. vocal performances that we get elsewhere. Yeah, he's like more restrained than R. Kelly in this way. Totally. He also does this thing where he like unintentionally manages to coin language that ends up being useful or relevant right in the sort of broader cultural sphere. Right. Mm-hmm. So like he didn't invent the phrase you got it bad, but he sort of gave it new definitions. Yes, so right? True. Like yes. you know, when you think of having it bad, like you think of Usher holding I on to chili in that yes. video. So there's like heartbroken Usher singing a super, super slow sad song. Mm-hmm. Then there's like psychodrama all in my head, <laughs> Usher singing a mid-tempo song. And yes. it's rounded out by like Usher ready to go to the club and have a great time. You know, and think about this record as a whole. I was playing You Don't Have to Call in the car the other night, and my friend said something interesting to me, which is that You Don't Have to Call presents a perspective that you often hear more from women. It's a thing Beyonce returns to quite a lot of like, you hurt me, I'm scorned, but I'm leaving you behind and I'm going out to have fun with my friends. Like, it's not a song that you often hear from a male perspective, which I thought was kind of an astute point. And again, that is an Usher thing, right? Like, Uh I think he does that really, really well. Yeah. Where he, I wouldn't go so far as to say as he like transgressive on any level, but he plays a little bit with Mm -hmm. gender expectations when it comes to hurt, right? Yes, because he loves love in the way that we often think of women loving it. You know, we often think of women in the total gender essentialist cliche way as being like the ones who want to fall in love and have a long-term monogamous relationship and men are not that way. But Usher is both the classic male trope of like the guy that loves to get with a lot of women or whatever the fuck it is. But also that conflict, it's what we've been talking about, this conflict on record between these parts of himself maybe because I think Usher is someone that also seems like genuinely passionate about wanting love, especially on this album. I mean, he is in this very serious relationship that will define both this album and of course the next album. So 8701, I would say even bigger hit than maybe my way is ultimately, you remind me number one, you got it bad number one, you don't have to call number three. So when does the breakup with Chili become public knowledge? Okay, so I don't know what the exact timeline is. Yeah. Because they both said conflicting things in the media at the time. Right. So as far as I know, I hear about the breakup with Chili not too long after 8701. Right. It should be noted she is in every single music video for all of the hit songs from that record. Yeah, and they're like officially a couple. Like there is no... Mm-hmm. Are they, aren't they? It's like they're together. Yes. 
I just remember that it was enough of an established fact that there was interest as to how Usher was going to address it on the next record. And that was by dint of just organic curiosity and also the fact that like he was clearly playing that up somehow. Like, because the next record that Usher goes into making is his magnum opus 2004's Confessions, which right in its title, obviously, like, is conveying the idea that we're about to, like, learn something revelatory about Usher's life. And I remember that narrative being formed before the record itself even came out. So let's talk about Confessions in a way this album is both defined by its lead single, but also the lead single is like a kind of red herring in terms of like what is essentially a concept album about infidelity or about like the results of this breakup. <laughs> yeah, it was actually one of the last songs recorded for the albums, and it makes sense. So basically he had recorded this concept album and we're going to talk about the songs that actually fit more into that arc more easily but they felt like they needed a party record at the time little john was like kind of on the come up he had been at the forefront of what was then called the crunk and bee movement which i think we can all agree is kind of funny in retrospect and had had a big breakthrough hit with get low in 2003 And then, of course, the Petey Pablo song, Freak Leak, both of which I think are important ground layers for Yeah. What Yeah essentially is, which is the lead single and is, I think, Usher's biggest hit pretty much indisputably still to this day, is a pop mainstreaming of Crunk and B, if that makes sense. worth pointing out here is that around the early to mid 2000s southern rap music right. starts to sort of take like a really 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 important place in the culture right so dancing is back right we're like in the club again yes bush presidency yeah. things are bad right and people just want to dance right so we have a new party sound in right. the mix it has hip-hop rhythms but the production is super electronic. It's like mm -hmm. made for choreo. It's interesting for it to have been mainstreamed through Yeah, because mm -hmm. a lot of the actual crunk music that was being made in, and other variations of Southern hip hop, like snap music, et cetera, et cetera, were appropriate to play in parties, but like there was some darkness happening yes. to it yes. too, right? So for, for sure. Yeah to be like that massive of a song almost ends up turning the genre into a little bit of a punchline, unfairly. Mm -hmm. like if you consider a lot of the musical innovation that's happening in hip hop, at this point, the genre has been around for like about 20 years, right? Yes. What was happening in the South was probably the biggest move forward in terms of creating a new sonic identity right. or a sonic potential for hip-hop, right? right? So everyone has a computer now, right? Yeah. Like that's sort of one way to think about what was happening musically. Everyone has a computer in a yes. cracked version of Fruity Loops, but we don't all have iPhone headphones yet, right? Yes. So there's still a lot of bass, right? There's still a lot mm -hmm. of music meant to be played in a car or in a club that you can sort of feel with your body. Yes. And Usher finds a home there, weirdly enough. It is quite corporal in that 
that way. But I think, you know, it's so funny because I really do think there's something that defines Yeah, which is sort of like the contrast between this like dissonant synthetic beat and Usher's warm, buttery vocals. That's like different than listening to Little John like screech and growl on record or Petey Pablo for that matter. The thing that makes this different and I guess more quote unquote pop is that you have these buttery MJ style Usher vocals in the contrast of this menacing sounding production. Super angular, right? Yes. It's very sharp mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like screechy. And Usher, he's giving you something to hold on to, like to grab onto yes. melodically, right? So right. he's rounding out the harder edges of the song with a legitimate pop delivery. And it has the great Usher psychodrama, melodrama. He's yet again in a situation where he has a crush on a girl who <laughs> used to be the best friend of his other girl. Like, <laughs> how does this man keep finding himself? in these situations it's a little bit like how did i end up here like you know what i mean like that's a little Who, bit me yeah exactly like once again i'm here in this kind of perverse love triangle like what has gone on here maybe he invites this stuff unintentionally into his life or something but i feel like this persona keeps coming up over and over again totally and we see it going from like space to space right yeah. like from venue to venue and so yeah. now this conflicted love triangle usher like will i or won't die is maybe on ecstasy at the club right like he's, <laughs> yeah. he's still going through the same things but the backdrop has changed a little yeah. bit and it never sounds like he's fully having fun because he's so deep in this he's like, in his head. anxiety thinking <laughs> Yeah, right, exactly. On a one to ten, she's a certified 20, but that just ain't me. Like, (laughs) what? Sir. (laughs) Call someone. Go home. He does need a therapist, I do think. So obviously, yeah, is a smash hit. But as I mentioned earlier, even though it's the biggest hit of his career, I do sort of find it to be a red herring on the rest of this record. So can you talk about a little bit aesthetically and thematically what defines the rest of Confessions? The rest of the album, keep in mind, this is 2004, right? Mm-hmm. So we're well into this neo-soul era, right? So there's a new vibe in R&B that is a lot more textured, a lot more flowy and earthy, right? Like we still have affiliations with hip hop, but they're a little bit more now with what some would call underground hip-hop, right? So there's unquantized beats. There's mm. almost like a backlash to the shininess of the Neptunes bad mm. boy era of the late 90s and early 2000s, where we're seeing this like massive movement in hip-hop and R&B that is a back to the roots. Right. Where did the boom bap go? Mm-hmm. Energy. And Usher, as usual, finds himself successfully building out a lane in between a couple of things. So on on this record, we're getting contributions from Just Blaze. There is grittiness. And the sort of soul throwback that's important, I feel like, that he and Kanye are totally. kind of pioneering, taking these soul samples, pitching them up, and bringing that element back into hip-hop production. The last word she said to me Now I'm wishing she was still here with me 
he's still doing his pop and R&B thing, but it's a lot more soulful, right? Like there's、yeah. a lot more warmth, there's a lot more texture, there's a lot more acoustic elements. You can already hear the live band playing behind him.、Mm-hmm. So we're sort of bringing him out of the Pro Tools box and into a studio with a full band. It's sort of the sound that we're hearing a little bit more of from him here. Even just talking about that Just Blaze song, Throwback, which is the second song on the record, there's this really beautiful interplay between Usher and the Dionne Warwick sample, like where he literally sings back to it. It's really well done. Really beautiful melding of R&B past and present in the way that the vocals are styled on it, and it sort of sets the tone for the rest of the themes of this record, which are about essentially a man who cheats on a woman and the emotional fallout from there. The central drama, yes, that exists on the record and carries over into his real life is built around the song "Confessions" and its various. Parts. There's like three parts, right? And basically, a man, maybe Usher, maybe not Usher, maybe Jermaine, maybe Jermaine. I think Jermaine has said it was him. Oh no, it was definitely Jermaine.、Mm-hmm. But for so many years, people thought it was Usher. Yes, and they played into that. They wanted that to be what people thought. Oh yeah, it's just sort of another way that he took advantage of the. Private, public nature of like、right. changing celebrity at the time. Sure, sure, sure. So we were walking around thinking that Usher got someone pregnant who was not his partner. Yes, that's the long and short of it. There's always a story, right? There's、yeah. a conceit in these songs. Yeah. But here we get some like real storytelling with specifics, right? He gets into what makes a really good song good, which is we get details. Oh、right? my god. We're not just talking generalities, right?、Yes. Like there's specifics here. It's so brilliantly written. This song. First of all, I mean, just a very gorgeous kind of minimalist bounce, simple but super well done, elegant R and B beats that give Usher a lot of space for the voice to work. Scaling back some of the bombast to just sort of like let the voice talk. And I love what you're talking about in terms of the storytelling. This is a very idiosyncratic hook. Just when I thought I said all I could say, my chick on the side says she got one on the way. I mean, that's like a really simple phrase, but yet like so singular. And I love the way that this song unfurls the story. First thing that came to mind is you. Second thing is what do I know if it's mine and is it true? Thing was, how do I know if it's mine and is it true? Third thing 
was me wishing that I never did what I did. How I ain't ready for no kid and this sort of thought-to-thought -thought narrative stream of consciousness that is so elegantly rendered on this song is truly astounding. It is so well written. Another one that I love that I pulled out, I'm riding in my whip, racing to her place, talking to myself, preparing to tell her to her face. She opened up the door and didn't want to come near me. What a great lyric. That image is like text painted in your brain immediately. When I'm riding in my whip, racing to her place, talking to myself, preparing to tell her to her face. She opened up the door and didn't want to come near me. I said, what's it makes you think that Usher has a journaling practice or yes. something, right? Like, this comes from someone's real life. And it's so colloquial, right? Like, yes. it's so conversational, yes. right? Yes. It's not forced into some conventional rhyme pattern. He's just like, listen, like... Sounds like he's talking to you. Yeah. Exactly. It sounds like he's talking to you. And you want to hear him talk to you, even if it's, it's this horrible story. And you really empathize with him, even though technically in this narrative, he kind of is the fuckboy. That's the other thing that Usher is so effective at, is like, the way that these songs are written and the way that he delivers them with a certain amount of vulnerability and the sort of self-reflection, you kind of find yourself on his side in a way that you wouldn't really, like I would never be the one to empathize with a cheating man. Like yeah. a straight cheating man, like I don't have a lot of patience for that. Like so. A straight cheating man who got his side chick pregnant and yeah. was out with her at the Beverly Center. Yes, you oh know, my God. Not that, caring who saw him. There's the line about the Beverly Center. I pulled that one out too. <laughs> So good. That is the best line. Okay, that's on the first part of Confessions. <laughs> Every time I was in LA, I was with my ex-girlfriend hand in hand in the Beverly Center. That is the funniest line I've ever heard of my life. I was like, what? That is so funny. Every time I was in LA, I was with my ex-girlfriend. Every time you called, I told you, baby, I'm working. What's I do with my dirt? I'm thinking about you getting hurt. Was hand in hand in the Beverly Center like, man, not giving a damn. Who sees me? Honestly, every time I've been to the Beverly Center since then, it's like, I, that's what I think of. Like, it's such an indelible lyric. And then also the fact that it was Jermaine and not Usher actually just adds to the hilarity of the whole thing. Because of course it was. You know, I think one of the reasons it's so easy to empathize with Usher on these songs is that He's not trying to justify it. You know, there's an entire genre of songs that would do exactly that, right? He's like, listen, I, I know I'm wrong. I mean, he says quite earnestly, this is the hardest thing yeah. I'll ever have to do. I mean, you really get the impression that he's going yeah. through it with this. And then he's like, I don't know if I'm ready to be a dad, you know? And it's like, oh, yeah. you're, you're also thinking about the kid. Right, right. Important part of this too. Like the kid isn't just like a pawn in this drama. It also kind of brings us a little bit back to like, maybe the more like annoying aspect of Usher's persona which is like I'm a guy that things happen to like he doesn't exactly like give himself a ton of agency like and at the same time as he's self-reflective it still is always through this lens of like how did I end up in this situation <laughs> Exactly. It's just like the classic slipped on a banana peel, like, you know. <laughs> like, oh, God, she's pregnant. 
<laughs> but I mean, to me, honestly, the real stunner of the album is Burn. I mean, I think Burn oh, is yeah. one of the most gorgeous. I have like literally a page of notes on Burn because I was just like, when it came out on the record, I round it right back to the beginning the second time. From that opening, like shuffling synthesizer noise to the like big string section. This is Usher's like most epic scale, naked emotional vulnerability, vocal performance and hook. I mean, this song is majestic. the colors right yes there's a lot happening Mm. vocally emotionally etc etc he has a knack for choosing songs that really do interesting things with language because much like you got it bad let it burn itself becomes a familiar cultural phrase that is given new meaning yes the extent of the emotion on there absolutely i mean and it's like stunning the way the lyrics are situated. Again, that sort of writing it like a hip hop beat and the sort of way that his voice is able to dip through different octaves. Like when he goes, cause the party ain't jumping like it used to. That vocal dexterity. And then also the way the song kind of like slips between the first and the third person. Like he goes from talking about himself to saying like, you know that it's over, you know that it's true. It has this really interesting quality of him. Like, are you talking to yourself? Are you talking to her? It really like frames it in all of these different ways that's like makes the song incredibly dynamic. That's another thing that, you know, we see it a little bit more later in his career where the songs aren't necessarily the most musically interesting. Right. But they do the same thing of like shifting between perspective or at least uh, taking on like the question of perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Which again, for a straight man, the bar is on the floor, but it's it's an interesting and I, I think really useful contribution that we get from Usher here. I agree. Let's talk about the rest of this record. What else is going on here that kind of helps further the themes and aesthetics of this album? The soul, this kind of throwback R&B, minimalist, grittier maybe R&B aesthetic, but also these themes of the hell that infidelity hath wrought on Usher's psyche <laughs> that sort of define this album. I think there's really two important songs here. One of them is a single, of course, My Boo. That song was inescapable. Mm -hmm. To me, in some ways, being a human in 2004 sounds like my boo. Totally. Like it was just everywhere. There's something really sweet about it. And Mm -hmm. we almost imagine it being like the prequel to what happens on the rest of the album, right? Like, because it's almost too idyllic, right? To think about in this same sort of narrative as the rest of Confessions. Right. Is there a way to frame the music on this record all in all? and maybe you might chafe against this, is like the danger that men and women pose to one another because men cheat. So you've got like confessions and burn, but then you also kind of have like women as like nefarious seductresses on Caught Up. And on Bad Girl, where like women are figures in Usher's psyche that are so tempting to him, but that lead him to his like worst impulses. Oh, 
you know, there's this kind of framing of like a woman as this demonic like, temptress in his life. It's interesting to think of that in the contrast of the songs like Confessions and stuff where he's like, fuck, I fucked up. You know what I mean? You know, I interpret a song like Cut Up and Usher has quite a few of these. He's like trying to justify it to himself, right? Like right. this is what happened. This is why this happened, right? Like right. he knows that this is not actually the case, right? right? Like I don't think he believes that he fell victim to a seductress, right? It's like, right. it's just much easier to tell yourself that that's what happened. And I think there's a level, when you see in the video, I think there's a level of meta acknowledgement of that. Mm. Women are confusing to Usher maybe. Like he says on that song, she got me twisted. You know what I mean? Like I'm losing control. This girl has a hold on me. He says, I never thought I'd be the one breaking down. Uh, yet again, women are a source of perhaps maybe confusion and psychodrama, which again, I can't help but think about 15-year-old Usher in the flavor camp, like having to confront some of these things maybe too early in his life and the way that that's like carried over into his adult life. I know that that's like psychology babble, but like I've kept thinking about that. Like women are a source of like massive anxiety for Usher and like sex is both an alluring but also anxiety producing activity for him. I think that makes sense. But I also do think that he knows he's wrong and he is just trying to spread the blame around a little yeah. bit. I think there's like a meta narrative here, yes. right? Where he knows exactly what's happening and it's just, oh no, like me again? Yeah, 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 yeah. And this record really is something that's worth listening to, I think, as like a full piece. Like it's really a pretty astounding concept record that he pulls off like somewhat effectively, I would say, aside from the fact that you could have cut five songs off of this and it would have been a lot stronger in my personal opinion. This is definitely, to me, the apex of Usher's artistic output in terms of like having a concept, having a true point of view, and really like realizing that fully on record. To me, I feel like I understand why this album sort of stands so canonically as his peak. They did such a good job of parlaying the media thing. I actually pulled this quote out from Jermaine in 2014, where he said, we wanted the media to ask us questions. Nobody knows who the fuck Billie Jean is. We're still looking for her. <laughs> Anyway, good. so Confessions is a gigantic hit. Four number one singles plus another top 10. It sells, I think, 20 million records worldwide. It becomes an utter and absolute smash. Usher becomes by far the biggest pop star. Kind of surpasses almost everybody at that point. He's pretty much the one. Usher then takes an incredibly long hiatus, four years off. In the interim, he meets and marries this woman, Tamika. I don't know the details of this, but like maybe you know a little bit about the story of like how he ends up like marrying this woman and then having a kid with her? Yeah, so there's actually so much drama here because by the time Confessions comes out, right? Yeah. Like. Usher and Chili break up. Yes. Chili's in the news talking about it. And there's rumors, etc. So his romantic life is just sort of being dissected. Yes. But he retreats for a little while, meets this woman, Tamika Foster, who I believe was his stylist, actually, for a oh, while. Oh, right. He, he knew stylist. Her I knew she was yeah. still in the Mua area. Yeah. So she has a couple kids, and they get really close, and he, I believe he adopts her kids, right? Like, her two children are his children now. Right. They have a child together. Right. And I remember these rumors so intensely that there was allegedly drama between Tamika, who he eventually marries, and his mom, who was his manager at the time, mm -hmm. right? So I remember it being a massive deal that Usher and Tamika get married and Usher's mom, she's either, she's not invited or she, you know, refuses to show up. So there's like these two women allegedly fighting over him. Perfect. You know, it happened Perfect. again, right? Perfect. Like here, here he is again. <laughs> 
Um, I guess I'm thinking about that now. What's going on? So I feel like by this point, he's like, what? Like, he's approaching his 30s, maybe? Mm-hmm. He's, he's, you know, he enters that phase of like, all right, I'm going to settle down. Yeah. So he, you know, mm-hmm. gets married. He has a kid. He has another kid. I think that's also like why he's not making music is because he's busy with all this personal drama. Yeah, totally. And then there's also business drama too, right? Something happens where his mom is no longer his manager. Yeah, right. He's not releasing new music, but he is still hovering around the culture. Yeah. He'll show up at award shows, right? He'll yeah. remind you that he's yeah. Usher. Yes. And I think, you know, another important ground layer here is that I feel like Confessions is the apex of sort of like hip hop and B, R&B centric pop music being the dominant form of pop. Usher was a squarely R&B singer that was able to have immense crossover success with essentially R&B songs. Burn, Confessions Part 2, Yeah is like a hip hop song. Like this is the moment where like 50 Cent is the other biggest male pop star of that moment. You know what I mean? It's like hip hop and pop oriented hip hop that incorporates elements of R&B and pop into it is de rigueur. By the time Usher returns in 2008 with Here I Stand, that is not really the case anymore. Now we are post-Future Sex Love Sounds, like uh, Justin has come back and reestablished himself post-Confessions as an equal, if not bigger, centrist pop force, and has helped usher in this new era of pop music that is more dance floor oriented, that is up-tempo, that is like drawing on disco, that is drawing on synth pop, what will eventually turn into EDM. Two thousand eight is also the year that a small upstart named Lady Gaga released Just Dance and Poker Face. Two thousand eight is also one year after Rihanna has had a gigantic hit with Don't Stop the Music. It is the year that Timberland has had a gigantic hit with The Way I Are. These are all songs that are even if they are conversant with R&B, are like moving out of classic R&B tradition and into like a more sort of dance-oriented direction. And I think a lot of stars who were thriving during the period of time where hip-hop and R&B had a more centrist place in the middle of pop music, some of them struggled to like figure out how to make this work. And I think when Usher returns in 2008 with Love in This Club, it is an interesting attempt to answer that question because it's both an R&B song but also definitely sounds post-future sex love sounds like it's got that stuttering synthesizer noise and it feels like this is him attempting to grapple with some of these changes on some level and still not lose his voice that's how i always hear that song That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, so a lot has happened. A lot has also happened in the music industry. So artists are sort of moving in this new direction where it's increasingly clear that they're not gonna pay the bills just by selling singles, right? Mm -hmm. Like there has to be a whole lot more happening, which is part of why we start to, my theory anyway, which is part of why we start to see in societies evolve past the need for R&B, huge quotes Yes, of course, yes. But more towards mass audience, you know, selling out arena tickets is sort of like a big part of this calculus. Yes. And there's sort of like something happening also culturally where we're we're post Napster, right? But we're not quite yet at the, everyone has all kinds of different 
genres on yeah, there. Right. I pot shuffle or, or whatever. Right. Genre is still king, right? <laughs> like there's still clear boundaries between genre. And a lot of that is super racialized. Sure. But Usher is like aging out in a sense. Right. And that right. one of the things that made him so successful as an R&B slash pop crossover was his legibility mm. as a pop star, right? Like he's very accessible. Yes, right? totally. Um, in an old school he, kind of way. In a super yeah. old school way. Mm-hmm. He's accessible, but it's still all about him. He's still the central piece. Mm-hmm. He's not just a vocal on a track. Personality driven. Exactly. Yes. He still needs a really, really big budget to make an album, mm-hmm. right? He's not emailing tracks back and forth. Yes, right. In many ways, R&B in general goes back to being segregated. Right. right? It's not just right. Usher. Right. So it's not a problem that's specific to Usher. However, Usher happens to be a massive pop star yes. with ambitions of remaining so. so yes. He's, he's sort of trying to figure out how he's going to navigate the space. And I think what he does here that's brilliant is he almost pioneers this like, genre in a sense. The genre that's like the last song that's played in the club, mm. right? Like where people are getting chose and it's time to go home. The lights are about to come on. Right. That's where love in this club plays, right? So it's not like traditional dance music. He yes. still finds a space in the so club. So true. You know what I mean? Yes, I love that. Love in this club is definitely the last song in the club kind of vibes. Like you kind of just want to like bop a little bit to it, but like you're not going to like fist pump and lose your Your mind. friends are like finding their coats or whatever. Yeah. It's interesting too, because it's also one of his more like unencumbered club songs. Like this one isn't exactly laden with conflict. It feels essentially like an easeful profession of sexual desire in a yeah. very I mean, light he's way. married now. Right. Well, that's the whole thing. This is supposed to be his like bliss album. So Love This Club precedes 2008's Here I Stand. And then there's also a record in 2010 called Raymond versus Raymond. The sort of like scaffolding I want to put up around this, and then I think we should talk about all this music on both these records in one swoop, is that Here I Stand is supposedly his marital bliss album and is his first album in the context of everything we just laid out and is a commercial underperformer in a massive way where Love in This Club is a number one hit, but coming off of Confessions 20 million copies, I believe this record sells something like one-tenth of that amount. None of the other singles really get off the ground, and he sort of quickly follows that up in 2010 with Raymond versus Raymond, a much shorter break, but in the interim, he breaks up with Tamika. So Raymond versus Raymond is framed as like a return to the conflict confessional vibe of confessions although in my personal opinion a much like paler imitation of that so also like some of the background of raymond versus raymond is like this really really disgusting child custody battle that the two of them right right so there's almost like a legal reference there and there's only so much you can sing about a child custody battle Mm -hmm. right when they're actually your children so we get back into like the usher of generalities right yes. so like aside from the sort of musical choices start to believe him a little bit less right a lot of the songs yes. start to feel right even though they're technically really usher right like he sounds great yes but like you almost start to wonder whether he believes himself anymore and also like whether he's been able to like effectively evolve his persona into deepening layers i think that's what we were talking about a little bit on the early earlier part of our conversation like thinking about these two records like in tandem with each other here i stand almost feels like because it's so devoid of the conflict that defines his great records, feels really nice music, but never something that like transcends into anything deeper. I always love the song This Ain't Sex. It's like a great kind of Michael throwback song written by the dream. He sounds incredible on those types of songs.
There's like the De Rigorge Battle of Love ballad, Moving Mountains. I think that the overall feeling that then carries into Raymond versus Raymond even further to me is that there was like a real artistic perspective and like felt like an impetus that drove Confessions and pre-Confessions orchestra records. Whereas like, I start to feel like in this era, he's like almost like trying to recreate that and also just like fishing around to find himself hits to stay relevant. Personified no clearer to me than in Oh My God, my least favorite Usher song and one of my least favorite songs of all time in which Usher loses essentially everything essential about him in pursuit of like a very trendy Will I Am sounding like EDM hit that like filters his gorgeous voice through auto-tune and has like a kind of sleazy unappealing perspective. Got me like oh my gosh I'm so in love I found you finally you make me wanna say That song makes me physically ill. Yeah. Um, I, I have, anytime I hear it, I feel like I'm being held hostage. Yes. But as usual, I have a gentler interpretation. Yes, right. I'm always um, here to like give the bomb you know, and you're here to be like, actually, is, Usher. Only when it comes to Usher. Only when it comes to Usher. He's doing his best. Um, I, have, I do think he was doing his best, right? It's a horrible song and he should have known better. He has a string of them, right? We see a bunch of people who maybe would have been considered his peers making really safe bets, right? right. Or like dialing down the riskiness. And I think in response a little bit to some of the things that were happening culturally. Yeah. It's no coincidence that after B-Day, Beyonce yeah, right, makes her... puts out Halo. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> like, this is his version of that. Yes, right, 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 right. right there right. is an inhospitability in the industry yes. towards that, yes. right? Like, we're seeing like the industry financially trying to figure out like how it's going to stay afloat, i.e. find new ways to exploit artists, but also all the consolidation, right? All the sort of demands of vertical integration. Like we're seeing many of our biggest pop figures doing things that just feel really corporate. I don't want to defend it, but you can see that he's not the only one who's doing it, right? I agree. And there's a racial element to it that I think we've been getting at too, which is that like it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is like, I do think there was a deep struggle for fun fundamentally R&B artists to figure out how to operate in this incredibly synthetic kind of fundamentally white feeling moment in pop and dance music. As you said, I think early in the conversation, Usher is someone who's not necessarily fundamentally driven by artistic impulses and like wants to be successful, maybe as a driving force in his career to the extent that he is willing to make it, oh my God. And like he did need a hit at that period, but he doesn't have the largesse of Beyonce to figure out a way to kind of sidestep that as she did on her visual album or whatever. Like, so he's just stuck having to make this Will I Am. What Rich Joswiak in the Village Voice referred to as Ed Hardy in musical form. Oof, ouch. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So lots of bad decisions being made. Um, <laughs> and uh, and yet they still kind of, in some ways, still serve. Yeah, Oh My God is a huge record. I mean, this was the beginning yeah. of my DJ career. I'll never forget it. I mean, that was like one of the big records. I think the other thing that might be worth pointing out about Raymond versus Raymond is there are some classic Usher songs that I really do like on here. Namely, There Goes My Baby, one of my all-time favorites. Oh, what an incredible song. Oh, I love that song so <laughs> Much. There goes my baby. Girl, you don't know how good it feels to call you my girl. 
he sounds stunning on that song. It's like peak Usher, oh, right? And velvet. you can also see some of the ways in which, again, like he was failed by the market, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously he, he could have done Right, like more, a song like that like, should have been a smash in a different era or something. It's a good song. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's so seductive and it's so velvety and it's so emotionally vulnerable. And the beat is big and spacious and gives him room to just soar in the same way that he kind of does on Burn. I love There Goes My Baby. In thinking about Usher's craven attempts during the EDM era, though, I will say I actually kind of like DJ Got Us Fallen in Love. <laughs> going to say we keep talking about oh my god which is again <laughs> absolute like someone yeah. should pay for that yes. but i do think there are more successful dance pop yeah big drop yes. tracks that usher ends, ends up on lots of bad music in this era yes. he's not at his best artistically <laughs> but that being said we do see some of his better instincts at play right mm -hmm. which is that he's down to try things he's down to yes. collaborate yes. right he's not threatened by younger artists he's not threatened by the idea of trying something out of left field which i think is a good instinct for someone trying to figure out how to remain relevant as he gets older. No, no, no. I agree. I mean, you do have to give him props for trying. And he did actually maintain his pop stardom in this period. I just can't help but feel like coming off of 2010, 2011, off of these two albums, he's dented in terms of his A-listness. Like, I remember feeling like despite the fact that he was getting hits, there was a cravenness to the Oh My Gods of this world that really did put a dent in his top tier, quote unquote, pop star. I do think so. Hearing those singles, I had absolutely zero interest in engaging with those albums yes, at the time. Yes, right. He was present, but I didn't feel respect towards yes, him. Yes, exactly. I feel right put it. even curiosity yes, towards him right. as an artist. I agree. His legacy is definitely sullied, but he's still Usher, right? Yes. You still can't avoid him. I think there's a way to frame that. Also, I don't think that his career has ever fully recovered commercially. I mean, here he was able to stumble into some hits like, oh my God, indeed, I got us fallen in love again. He's released two more albums since then. The quote unquote experimental of Looking For Myself, his 2012 album that featured contributions from Diplo and Luke Steele from Empire of the Sun, which actually is a very enjoyable album. Yes. And then there's his most recent that record, 2016's Hard to Love, like a kind of take on like alt R&B, Usher playing with his children's musical styles or something like that. Make you say, no limit. I see murder, murder that. No limit, baby. By 2012, divorce has happened, yes. right? Like he's recovered from it, right? Yes. He's doing what a lot of artists are doing, which is reaching across genre yes. lines, right. right? So he is following in the Solange at the Grizzly Bear Show um, <laughs> footsteps. That one night out of Solange has like turned into like one of the biggest pop cultural events in history. And we get Usher's version of that in some senses. Those two albums, thinking of them together, yeah. it really works because he's returning to R&B, but he's not just doing the same old thing. Yeah. In some ways, he's doing the same old thing. But you, you can also hear the interest that he has, right? Like the curiosity that he yes. has, like the sort of desire to branch out a little bit. If Raymond versus Raymond and Here I Stand were kind of flailing around for hits in that being sort of framed as experimentalism, these feel more like genuine artistic experimentations that feel more grounded in something actually interesting that's not just chasing trends. Like Climax, I think, is 
top tier Usher song produced by Unbelievable song. A unbelievable song. Like a sheer thing of beauty. What I love about it is the way that that buildup happens in the chorus and then releases into nothing. You think you're going to get a drop of some sort and that never sort of arrives. And that's the ultimate representation of a climax or an anti-climax or something like that. Totally. another one of those instances where we see him doing that thing with language right yes. where it's like you wouldn't necessarily think about it but once you investigate you're like oh wait a minute this is like a new take on this colloquialism and i think another thing too that's happening here that's maybe liberating for him yeah. is that and again this is very much tied to the solange grizzly bear moment yeah the terms have changed right the rules of engagement has right. changed no one is expecting usher or any artist to sell 10 million copies true, true, anymore, true, true, true. right? right, right. right? Mm -hmm. So cultural cachet means a whole lot more than pure numbers. Mm -hmm. It's not that he lowers his ambitions. That's not the case at all. But it's like, wait, I'm not in competition necessarily with my former self. Right. Yeah. I think looking for myself in particular felt like a moment of liberation in that way. And Climax really represents that. It's like, what I love about the best songs on this record, like Climax, is that they meld some of the tried and true tropes of Usher with some really intriguing new directions that he does work really well in. One of the things that Climax sets into motion and that we've seen over the decades since is Usher's sort of commitment to his vocals. Because right? yes. I actually think in a lot of ways, his voice is a lot more impressive now than it was 15, 20 years ago. And mm -hmm. that's pretty rare. And I think that's in part because of the fact that he was making songs like Climax, obviously the falsetto, right? But he's also sort of stretching his lower octave and sort of using his range in ways that remind me that, oh yeah, his primary artistry is his voice. That's Absolutely. what he's really concerned with. And he needs music that supports that. That's really the thing. And that's what the EDM songs like sort of are missing for me is like they're not built around that. They're built around other synthetic things. In thinking in toto about all of this music, about all of Usher's career, what do you see as Usher's legacy and like his influence over the pop landscape that sort of emerged following him? I think his legacy is really like making music that is accessible without sacrificing its soulfulness mm. or it's singingness at the core of it. We saw a lot of that come into play with the NPR Tiny Desk moment, which to me, I mean, beautiful performance, but it's like, yeah, duh, like, this is who Usher is. At this point, the situation's out of control, baby. I never meant to hurt her, but I gotta let her go. And if she may not understand it while all of this is going on, I try. I was almost surprised by the surprise because to me that moment was his legacy, right? These incredible songs ready for the stage, essentially, right? That could be reinterpreted in all kinds of ways, but that have R&B at their core. Think about her, 
Let's talk about the Pop Pantheon. Which tier in the Pop Pantheon do you see our boy, U-S-H-E-R-R-A-Y-M-O-N-D, sliding into here? I mean, I think he's a megastar. Oh, shit. Okay. You don't think he's a megastar? I don't know. I'm kind of vacillating between two and three. (gasps) (laughs) The gas. You think? The gas. He's a mere superstar? I would say by your own criteria yeah, here, right. you're, you're he's about definitely to a megastar. Right. <laughs> oh, wait, let's just let's run through megastar for a second. Highly relevant, producing numerous 15 genuine hit songs. Yeah, he's got that for sure. Yeah. Mononymously, obviously, he's only mononymous. One musical era that defined or shifted a certain period of pop. Obviously, yes. Generation defining, yes. At least one successful reinvention or musical image overhaul. Thoughts? Yeah, I would say so. I, I do think that even though these are not my favorites, the Love in This Club era, I yeah, do right. think that was a successful musical overhaul, if not an image right. overhaul. Right. Never image overhaul, but maybe musical. Like He has done some yeah. pretty interesting musical experimentation. Interesting. Yeah, and his, his image never needed to be overhauled. I agree. You know? Okay. Multimedia moments that define an era. Absolutely. Could sell tour arenas. Absolutely. Legacy set in stone. Absolutely. If they release music now, it'd be a highly covered story. I mean, I felt like Hard to Love was a little bit of a blip. Yeah. Right? It was. I think that says as much about the media space. Right. Or there was a lot more chatter on social media than there was on like popular press. Cutline Super Bowl? Yeah, he could do that. Okay, here's my one question. I'm, I'm willing to take a two. But here's my question. Where's Justin Timberlake for you in the pop pantheon? To me, Justin Timberlake is a two. Solid? I mean, he might even be a three, honestly. That's, see, this is the tricky thing. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. What makes him a two is if you consider in sync. If it's just Justin, it's only like two, three albums, right? Like, yeah, yeah. But it's just like la- such landmarks, like Justified and Future Sex Love Sounds in particular. To me, Justified, massive landmark. Future Love, I, I think it's overblown. Ooh. I don't think I've said this out loud before. But like massively influential record. No? I don't know. I To me, Sexy Back is like... Oh my God. I think regardless of whether you like Sexy Back or not, I think Sexy Back's melding of like disco rhythms and like synth pop with R&B and hip hop values was like an important transitional moment for pop music. No, but that's actually what I mean is that like, I think that Justin Timberlake benefited a lot from the goodwill he had built up. Yes, that's um, for fucking sure. As being Justin Timberlake. Who has a bigger footprint as a pop star writ large in 2022? Usher or Justin Timberlake? I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, yeah. think Usher. Uh-huh. Like, if I went to, like, my class yeah. Gen Zers, yes. they don't know anything about Justin Timberlake. <laughs> but Usher is still very present, right? right? And I think part of that is a, just a numbers game. Yeah. Right? Like, he's just put out so much more music. Yeah, it's true. But I think his imprint is a lot more indelible. Yes, I can see that. Justified is one of my favorite yeah. albums of all time. Right. But I don't think he has a confession. Okay. I'm t- I'll take two. I'll take two for Usher. I think that that makes sense. I'll take it. You're lucky I didn't try to argue one because no. on Cut, a different get, get, day. Sit down, girl. Please. <laughs> no way. No one who makes Oh My God can go with one. Sorry. He's banned exclusively for that song. Forever. <laughs> All right. Tier two. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm into it. You've got, you, you convinced me. I'm there. There was no way I was going to accept I'm there. The three. I'm there. I'm there. I'm okay. there. I'm there. I mean, it has been so much fun listening back to all that music. I mean, I could listen to You Don't Have to Call and You Remind Me every day for the rest of my life and be like a very happy Me too. Person. And you know what? I just might. I, I just can't might. wait. I'm actually about to take a drive right now to Santa Barbara <laughs> and I'm about to put all of this shit on. Oh, hell yeah. So last question. 
Is there an Usher song underrated that we haven't spoken about that we could send the podcast out on that you're a particularly big fan of? Oh, you know what? I will say Slow Jam from My Way with Monica. Yeah, great song. All right, let's go out on Slow Jam. Rawia Kumar, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. See you in Vegas. See you in Vegas. I'm dead ass about that. <laughs> Me too. Let's do it. All right, so there you have it, Pop Pantheon Usher, a tier two megastar. Obviously, Rawi wasn't letting me get out of here without agreeing to that, so I agree to it wholeheartedly with my whole chest. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much again to Rawi for being on the show and for being such an incredible guest. I want to say thank you so much, as always, to the amazing Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen. Please follow Pop Pantheon Pod on social media and me at DJ L O U I E X I V. Please. Please rate and review Pop Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes of this episode and on social media. Hop in our Discord. The links for those will also be in the show notes and on social media. And please send your questions about Pop, about Pop Pantheon, about our rankings, about anything else, even marginally pop music related, to poppantheonpod at gmail.com and we will answer them on an upcoming listener mailbag episode. And until we meet again, you guys have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.